Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. This is a Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and I'm looking forward to this episode quite a bit. I'll be interviewing Eric Beatner, a friend of mine and a very talented writer, very prolific crime writer who's uh, put out a lot of books, um, including three, uh, well, two and one, one on the way that uh, he and I wrote together. And I got to tell you, some of the most fun I had writing a book uh, came working with Eric. So instead of running down his uh, particulars, why don't we just jump right in and get to know Eric Beatner? All right, well, welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, when I came on your show a few weeks ago, it was a momentous occasion, and uh, now it's just kind of uh, old hat. Are you coming? That's right. <laughs> oh, Frank again. Ugh. <laughs> for those that don't know, and you, you, you should be listening to Writer Types, the show that Eric co-hosts with S.W. Loudon, but uh, they had me on uh, uh, last episode, and that was actually an historic event. Uh, it was the first time that you and I spoke in person after, God, like three years, I think, of yeah. working together. It was crazy. Yeah, well, three three full novels and uh, over a dozen book covers that we collaborated on. It's yeah. Yeah, it's really really ridiculous that it took that long, but uh, now the ice is broken, and here we are. Well, it's strange that you can that we live in a world where you can have that sort of interaction with somebody, and like I legitimately like you, and I legitimately <laughs> felt like I knew you, and. I mean, I made a joke to a bunch of people that, you know, you were the nicest guy I never met and, you know, stuff like that. But it, it was it, it, it's just fascinating to me that you can actually develop an, a friendship uh, over such a limited medium. You know, I mean. Oh, yeah. Uh, most of the people that I know in the writing world, I met and knew for a long time only in the digital world. And it wasn't until. You know, conferences like the Bauschikan and and Left Coast Crime and things like that that I actually started meeting these people in the flesh. And you, you go to these conferences and you hear that all up and down the halls. It's like, oh my God, there you are in person. And everyone is making these connections. And so and we're not special, is what you're saying. That's well. <laughs> it's, the difference is these people are not actually like writing full novels together. Three. Just, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> well. Uh... You know, I wanted to jump straight to the first thing that's uh, on my mind, and that is that you leave for Toronto in just a few days, right? That's right. And for those that are living under a literary rock, uh, why don't you tell people why you are going to Toronto? Uh, well, this is the aforementioned Bauschikan uh, convention that happens every year in a different city across North America. I can't even say just America because this year it's in Toronto, Canada. Uh, and this is really the biggest gathering of crime fiction writers and readers that happens every year. And, and it's I've been going every year since San Francisco, which I think this is going to be my seventh, maybe even eighth year. I can't even remember at this point, but it's always such a great time. And it's it's an opportunity to see people that you know, you know, vaguely from online or, or even just from reading them and getting to interact and hang out. It's also a time to meet readers. I mean, it has some of the most dedicated crime and mystery fiction readers that attend this conference every year. So every single time, it's just a real blast of a weekend. So I'm really looking forward to this one. And it's going to be a busy time for me. I have something going on, multiple things going on every single day. So it's going to be a whirlwind, but I'm really looking forward to it. Well, there's a reason why you have a lot going on. And that is because you've had at least uh, that I'm aware of two different categories in which you've been nominated for an Anthony award, 
which is the awards that are given out at BoucherCon every year. Yeah. Um, I had dinner with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law tonight, and, and Wendy, she asked me, you know, who are you interviewing tonight? And I told her, and I was trying to explain to her what the Anthony Award is, and the best, the best, and help me if I'm wrong here, because uh, I don't know that I'm accurate, but the best analogy I could come up with is it's not quite the Oscar, that would be the Edgar but it's kind of like the Golden Globes or the People's Choice or I don't know something. Uh, yeah, and it could you could argue that it's the Oscar as well. I mean, the Edgar's kind of more the, on the literary end for some folks, I guess. Yeah. What's your What's your take on it? Well, I, I think that's that's a fair analogy. But I, the one thing that I think separates the Anthony Awards from the others is that it's really it's a fan curated award. I mean, the, the books that get nominated are nominated by people who uh, attend the Bauschkan convention from the year before. So if, if your name was on the list and you get sent out a ballot uh, and you get to nominate the books and then the people that vote to see who's going to win are the people that actually attend the conference. Oh, wow. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's, there's no advanced voting. So voting starts the minute people start to arrive in the hotel and you fill out your ballot and you drop it in the box. And so it really is all about the direct result of people on the ground right there that you're meeting up and down the hallways, both writers and readers. So it's not, uh, you know, some academy on high who's making the, the choice based on a bunch of ephemeral things that we don't understand. This is really is, uh, it's, it's a grassroots award. So in that sense, uh, it would be incredibly gratifying to win one, even though I highly doubt that's going to happen. <laughs> Uh, so, well, you, you yeah. said you don't think you're going to win, but I mean, I think for one, you're being a little bit on the humble side. Uh, but uh, what are you nominated for? I let, let's, let's let people know. Uh, well, I'm nominated in the best paperback original category for my novel Leadfoot, which is the second novel in my uh, McGraw family crime series uh and the rum runners being the first yeah rum runners being the first one so that's the one where the the competition is really steep uh i'm up against writers like uh, adrian mckinty james ziskin jess lurie patricia abbott and jay stringer so just based on uh volume of readership alone i think i don't stand a chance and there are some truly excellent books in that category too so that that is uh something i take the the old maxim of it's an honor just to be nominated i really take that to heart in that category for sure uh and then who who is that who published that uh it was originally published by 280 steps who ceremoniously or rather unceremoniously (laughs) went out of business uh rather just this year suddenly yeah it happened earlier this year uh with it when they gave us about five days notice uh, but then the good folks at Down and Out Books, Eric Campbell and the crew, swept in and picked up all five of my orphaned books uh, that were left in the lurch from that debacle. And so they re-released Rummers and Leadfoot right away to get them back out there. Uh, and then all three of my Lars and Shane uh, books are going to be out again, I think, in February of next year or so. But then uh, on the other, the other nomination is, in a strange way, it's a little bit more gratifying for me. It's for Best Anthology, and the anthology that I put together called Unloaded, Crime Writers Writing Without Guns. Uh, it was a project that I started. I, I wasn't even sure if I could scare up enough interest from other writers, but I've, it's been such a phenomenal response, uh, and we're, we're already headed towards volume two right now but uh that, that one was just really gratifying for that to get a little bit of recognition for the the work that that the authors put into that and for no money because all the proceeds for that one get donated to charities 
and the 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 reason that you came up with that it was uh, in response to some gun violence wasn't it yeah you know i i'm i'm on a kind of unabashedly liberal i guess you could say i live in hollywood and i'm one of those left coast weirdos i guess but uh you know as much as i write about guns and I, and I recognize that guns are they're a part of the american fabric there's no way I, I'm, I'm not trying to abolish the second amendment or you know i don't want to send somebody in to take all your guns and all that the, these sort of hyperbolic arguments that get made anytime you bring up this issue of gun control or gun violence so what i was feeling was a little bit of guilt i guess so i was starting to feel like you know man am i part of the problem am i glorifying the use of of guns by the things that I write. And it just really didn't jive with my own personal feelings. And then there were just a, a series of mass shootings and attacks, you know, in the Sandy Hook, and then, you know, people getting shot up in movie theaters and churches. And it was just madness. And the only recourse that uh, most of us had was to go on Twitter and, and rant and rave and complain and express your displeasure. And just reached a point for me where that kind of wasn't enough. And I had recognized a lot of my writer friends, you know, also on social media expressing the same views. So I said, okay, I think there's, there are like-minded people out there that I can get to band together and use the weapons that are at our disposal. And that's our words. So my idea was to put together an anthology of original crime stories and not to have it be an anti-gun screed you know I, I i purposely set out the boundaries and saying i look i don't want an anti-gun story i don't want a story that vilifies guns or gun violence i actually want to take guns completely out of the equation so write me a story that has all the excitement and the action of a crime fiction story that we know and love but just doesn't have any guns at all you just leave them off the page and you know it, it's a small gesture and i know that but it's a way to hopefully spark a little bit of a discussion that's not filled with the vitriol or the hyperbole that normally surrounds this issue and a way of saying, look, you can remove the guns for a while and our plot didn't fall apart. The world didn't fall apart. Maybe we can actually have this discussion that in real life, guns aren't as necessary as we think they are to being an American. So that's where it all came from. Well, and that whole discussion uh you know, has even more relevance with the events in Las Vegas recently. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, the first line of my introduction for volume two is uh, that I wish this book didn't exist at all, but mm -hmm. uh, precious little has changed since the first volume to the second volume. And uh, I, I don't see it changing anytime real soon based on uh, yeah recent events. Well, it seems like it's one of those topics that uh, much like uh, race issues when two opposing views get in the same room, there's less concern about understanding each other and more concern about somehow winning the argument right. or, you know, or whatever. And so you do, you know, you do get hyperbolic statements from, uh, from gun supporters and you get some hyperbolic statements from, from, uh, uh gun control advocates as well. Yeah. And when that's happening, nobody's listening to each other. Right. Um, you know, curiously, I was not invited to be part of that anthology, <laughs> and I uh, actually wondered if you thought that might be because I wouldn't be a supporter of the project, having been uh, in law enforcement uh, uh, for my career. Uh, you know, it's, it is tricky. I mean, especially with volume one, I tread very lightly, and I only went after people who I knew 
definitively would support a project like this. Like, like I'm I just said, busting your balls. Oh, I, no, I know. <laughs> Believe me, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of writers out there who have since come out of the woodwork and, and expressed their support, but just well, of course you're going to, you're going to win an Anthony for it. Of course. Uh, well, support yeah, well, <laughs> did I mention nobody got paid, <laughs> but you know, it, it really is. It's, it's a, it's a touchy subject for a lot of people. And sure. I, I didn't want to sure. make any assumptions. I didn't want to, yeah spark any discussions i didn't want to you know piss anybody it's off one, it's one of those discussions that that uh, that i've discovered and i and obviously you have too because you're you tread it carefully with people that it, it can be one of those friend killers i mean you, know, yeah. you see people get upset on facebook and you know if you believe this unfriend me you know and 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 that happens in real life too people are like well i can't be friends with this guy he's a gun grabber i can't be friends with this guy he's a gun nut absolutely i think i think it's interesting you know we and, and you know for the record i you know people probably know i spent 20 years in law enforcement and uh and and i'm you know i'm in favor of the second amendment but you know there are restrictions on all of our freedoms uh, that make for us make it possible for us to have a uh, to live in a safe society i mean there are restrictions on freedom of speech there are restrictions on freedom of the press and so i think you know i i think a reasonable person can be in favor of reasonable restrictions very similarly in to the second amendment that you see in to the first amendment you know i mean that's right. not an unreasonable but people you know you get the absolutists on one side and then you get the uh uh well, the absolutists of a different nature on the other side absolutely wanna, yeah you know, uh, melt every gun down and you know and, and create a you know monument to something <laughs> right <laughs> it's just it's and, crazy and, you know, and, and neither side needs to be that dug in to their you know it's and then again like that that was really the the idea is to not solve a problem that I think is unsolvable, especially by just a tiny little book and a bunch of, you know, authors, but I think just a way to open up the discussion and to be able to, to have a dialogue about it. And I, you know, I was really proud that we have people involved in, in both volumes who are gun owners and who are on both sides of the political aisle and stuff. So I, I think, you know, some of the, like you say, I mean, some of the writers and people that I've talked with who are the strongest advocates for common sense, you know, gun laws and, 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 you know, a little bit of restriction are some of the most avid hunters and outdoorsmen and, and gun owners that, that I know. So, well, good for you. I mean, what you're doing is facilitating a reasonable conversation and that's really what I think what needs to happen with a, a number of different subjects on, in our country today. But I do hope you win the award. I, <laughs> who are you up against? Uh, who, who are you going up against? That one is up against uh, Jay Stringer again for, for his Your nemesis. <laughs> I know. Well, it's you know it's funny. It, it, the other uh, nominees, I, I actually have stories in two of the other collections. So <laughs> That's little... why I thought you were nominated for more than just two awards. You you have a stake in more than just I do. Two. I do. Yeah. The, uh, but Jay is nominated for the Replacements Anthology, uh, Waiting to Be Forgotten, which was a great collection. Uh, Greg Heron is nominated for the previous Bowser Khan anthology, uh, Blood on the Bayou. Uh, Lawrence Block is nominated for that, uh, the Edward Hopper collection. So, you know, if, if, if I get beat by Lawrence Block, how sad can I be? <laughs> yeah, well, you were in the same room, basically. So yeah, that's a good thing. yeah. And, okay. and the other one uh, that, that, kinda, that is special in this, uh, in this group is Jen Connolly got nominated for her short story collection. So she's the only single author uh, collection that's nominated so congrats to jen and, and it really is a great uh, a great collection of hers 
That's, cannibal. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's called Cannibals. It's really, really good stuff. She's a great writer. You are one of the more prolific guys out there. Um, <laughs> that's, that's why we, we go together, you and I, Frank. We're... Well, we do roll pretty good. I mean, we could we could start talking. We could start with that. I mean, we uh, all three of the Cam and Bricks uh, books. Though, uh, my pers- my perspective on that, my, I felt like they went really fast, and I yeah. felt like even the revision process was like, well, you didn't even want to do the revision, so <laughs> it, it went really fast. <laughs> you shared your opinion of revision on, on writer types. Would you mind re, re uh, doing the reprise of that now? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's not the part of writing that I enjoy the most. So I really endeavor to come up with the cleanest and tightest first drafts that I can just to avoid any revisiting down the road. I I think, uh, honestly, uh, most of that stems from my day job, which I'm a television editor. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so my entire world for 25 years now or so is that I go and I do my job, which is it's a creative endeavor and I love it. And and it's really great to have, you know, a, a day job that's also creative. And I think it uses a lot of the same parts of my brain as, as writing. But to go and do that and then I hand in a cut and then I spend weeks and weeks and weeks getting notes on it and making changes and tweaking and adjusting and, and moving this little thing here. And then somebody else watches it and they have thoughts and I have to go back and adjust. And you have to appease producers and networks and all these things. So your enti- my entire world is making tiny changes to the creative thing that I've done. So writing for me is, it's my little bubble. So as much as I can avoid the thing that I do for a living, <laughs> I wanna do that. I wanna have my precious little pages and, and just have them be and just not have, that's why I don't do beta readers. I, I'm not a part of a writing group. Uh, and it's why I honestly, like, I thought I would be a terrible co-writer because I'm sort of like, why do I care about anybody else's opinion? I spend my life hearing other people's opinions. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you know, I, I said it on writer types and, and it's true. You do write the absolute cleanest first draft of anyone I've ever uh, read, much less. Well, thank with. you. Um, but uh, but it's not just that they're clean. I mean, they're good. They're not just clean. They're good. <laughs> and when 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 we wrote all three of the Cam and Bricks books, they just they really they hammered out pretty fast. You know, I wonder if some of that was because I think in all three novels, we spent probably somewhere between half to two thirds of those books with the characters in separate locations. I mean, we were really writing two halves of the same book rather than yeah. each writing half the load of one book, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think for the other stuff that I've co-written, I haven't done as much as you, but the the books that I have co-written with another writer named J.B. Cole, uh, we split it up the same way. And I, I for me, I think that does help the process along where you're not constantly second-guessing the other writer's voice or, or, or another character. Because someone like Bricks, I mean, Bricks is very much your creation so every time that I had a scene where they crossed over and I had to write her, I was giving it, maybe overthinking it a little bit more than I normally would. Because I normally, you know, I, when I sit down to write, I write very quickly. I mean, like my writing time at night after the kids go to bed, you know, I have 60 minutes, 90 minutes. And this is at the end of working a full day. So I, I, I both have limited amount of time just in terms of, I, you know, I need to go to bed <laughs> or 
limited mental capacity after a full day of work and then, you know, dinner and tucking the kids in and all, and all this stuff. So like by the time you get to the end of the day, you only have so much mental real estate left. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, speaks to just when I sit down and I write, I try to be as efficient as I possibly can with it. And I could still knock out 1500, 2000 words a night in that 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. But it's because when I sit down, I'm like, I know where I'm going. I'm an outliner and you know, that was one thing I think was important to our process is we outlined beforehand. So we both knew mm-hmm. the direction we were going. But then I, I'm not second guessing it or, or really rethinking it when it's when it's all mine and it's all my characters and everything like that, which I think, uh, you know, I know. Did you feel the same way when you had to write Cam? Were you a little bit more nervous about it? Yeah, I was. I wouldn't say nervous. I think the word I would choose would be um, uh here I'm a writer struggling for the word, uh, you know, <laughs> respectful, I think is close to what I'm looking for. Um, I, I wanted to treat, I wanted to present cam and treat cam, um, in the way that you, uh, envisioned him, but also through the eyes of, of what, what rescued me was I did it through the eyes of bricks. So, right. you know, you, you, cam saw himself a certain way and you wrote him that way. And I tried to respect that uh, to the absolute max that I could while still seeing him through Brix's eyes, which gave me a little latitude there. Uh, and I, I felt like you did the same thing. Yeah. And it was interesting. I mean, first of all, I hope I made it easy for you because Cam's a bit of a buffoon. I mean, he's, he's not, he's not terribly good at his chosen profession. Oh, he's very of, of good at killing it. people. <laughs> he's just messy. <laughs> yes. He's very messy, but it, it was interesting because I, I think there were a lot of times when, you know, I've, I, as the author, I've read what came out of Brick's head, but Cam in his chapters, I think, wouldn't know a lot of the stuff that she yeah. lets the reader know in internal dialogue because she's she's pretty guarded and she's uh-huh. keeps to herself and and you know has to be in the in her in the job she has, which is not very friendly to women. But it was interesting sometimes checking myself for like oh no no i i know that about her but cam doesn't know that about her she she keeps that close to the vest or whatever so well that's interesting you know i think the other part that worked really well for us in that series is that um where where the two individual characters were concerned um we kind of had absolute veto power like if i wrote something about cam that wasn't you know, unless it was flat out, obviously, Brix's opinion of him, you know, yeah. I mean, that was pretty much what it was. But, it, you know, you could come in and say, well, actually, I think he'd probably approach it this way or he'd never say that. He'd probably say it this way. And I don't remember there being a lot of instances of that, but we both knew we had yeah. that ability to do that. I always knew I could say, well, I, I you know, I think Brix would handle it this way or she, you know, that, that made it easier to, to work, I think. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I think that if you're going to enter into any collaboration with with somebody you have to have that laid out right off the top is is that if if it's a character or a situation that you've created and that you do feel some sort of ownership over then i think you, splitting up the responsibilities that way is is the only way to go i mean we never really sat down and said these are the boundaries but we both just kind of fell into this rhythm where we understood yeah. them yeah. And I th- it's interesting. I, I've had people ask me, you know, what what was it like to collaborate or, you know, would you recommend it? And I, I never recommend it to anybody, <laughs> it, it, even though I've had nothing but positive experiences. I, I honestly don't recommend it because I feel like I've just gotten really, really lucky. And, and I've seen 
other people more in the screenwriting world when I was when I was a screenwriter. I've seen people try to try to write screenplays together and it just ends up a killing a friendship or, or something. But I, I do think that the thing that I've kept on my side and that's worked for me is not meeting the people, never being in the same room. Not I, I have no desire whatsoever to sit there and, and be typing while you or anybody else is over my shoulder going, OK, here's the thing. Bricks comes in and it's like, no, just, <laughs> you go off and do your thing and send it to me. And if I have a problem, I'll, you know, that just seems like yeah. torture, absolute yeah. torture. Yeah, I can't I don't think I would uh, I dig that either. I, I dig the idea of, hey, let's meet for coffee and talk about where this book is going to go and all that. That's energizing. And I yeah. love that kind of interaction. Outlining. Yeah. When you talk about people ruining their friendships over that kind of stuff, what are the, what's the biggest pitfall that they run into? Just a difference of opinion or... Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's the classic creative differences, and and I think I, I think in, in Hollywood it's different too because you're always under the gun of what can I write that's going to sell, and and I I, just, I think the the approach to writing a screenplay for a lot of people is is so incredibly different than the approach to writing a novel because I think novel I mean it's a gross generalization because not that. People don't write original screenplays just for the pure love of telling a story and they want to get it out. That said, I think that there's a lot of screenwriters in this town who are sitting down with the express purpose of what does the market want? You know, what was big last summer that I can sell? What or, or what's the new trend? Or, you know, that, so I think when people are coming at it from maybe less than a purely creative viewpoint, then you're the motive for why you're doing things changes and it's not you're not a slave to the story as much as you're listening to the other you know angels and devils on your shoulders so i think that's where those things can blow up pretty quickly but you know i could be wrong i don't know well, that's interesting to me if i were to have guessed i would have thought that ego would have been the big well of course but well yeah and, and, and as well yeah well it's hollywood come on <laughs> all right i'm not crazy <laughs> We'll get back to our conversation with Eric Beatner shortly, but uh, now it's time to hear from the sponsor of this show. Wrong Place Right Crime is sponsored by Down and Out Books, and here from Down and Out Books is the chief editor, Eric Campbell, with a message. Yo, Frank, this is Eric Campbell from Down and Out Books, and today I'm excited to tell your listeners about a couple of upcoming releases. First up, Shakedown by Martin Bodenham. We're introduced to Damon Trainer who is the head of a billion-dollar private equity firm that bid and won a U.S. government-owned defense company. Soon after the acquisition, Damon discovers something that makes the company virtually worthless. Lawrence Kelter says it best, think absolute power meets the firm, and you've got the inside track on this heart-pounding thriller, relentlessly entertaining. Frank, one of the things that I'm most proud about is having the opportunity to publish books whereby the proceeds benefit a great cause. November sees the release of Killing Malman, which is an anthology benefiting the Multiple Sclerosis Society. Back in 2014, Crime Spree Magazine held an internet-based flash, flash fiction contest. The rules were simple. Somewhere in the story, you had to kill Dan Malman. That was it. The stories had to be brief, inventive, 
and somewhere Malman had to die. But Down and Out Books is publishing 31 stories, some old, most are new. A, free, a few of the contributors include Dana Cameron, Hillary Davidson, and Brad Parks. Plus, you've got your other normal cast of characters you always see in these type of, of benefit anthologies. These books are both available for pre-order now. You can find more at Down and Out Books. And Frank, thanks a million for having me on the show. Thanks, Eric. Uh, both Eric Beatner and I have books there at Down and Out Books, uh, and uh, it's a, a really stellar publisher. I'm proud to be part of it. Glad that they sponsor the show and that they're involved. Um, let's let's go let's go learn some more about Eric Beatner, though. Now you mentioned you have a day job as an editor. Um, that's on the uh, the Amazing Race, right? Yeah, well, I'm a freelance uh, editor, so I, I usually do f- you know four, maybe five jobs a year. Uh, I'll just go show to show, and they last for however long they last. Uh, the Amazing Race has been one of my consistent shows that I've done. Uh, I just this past week started back in uh, on my eighth season. Uh, it's season thirty for the show overall, so I'm I was st- a relatively the new guy until Eric about last year. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean I, I've it's it's a it's a hard road being freelance because you know when a job ends and if it doesn't get picked up for a second season or if you don't know when that next season is going to start i'm kicked to the curb and i have to go hunt and find another job and after you know 20 odd years of doing it i could i I could use a steady stable income (laughs) but it's it's you know knock wood i haven't been out of work other than by choice and in, in a long, long time. So I, I must be doing something right because people keep hiring me. Well, you got out, you got nominated for an Emmy, didn't you? Uh, yeah, it's uh, this year we got nominated again. It's uh, I'm, I'm happy and proud to say it's not my first. Uh, and I'm I'm not ashamed to say I've never won, but, <laughs> but it's tried on a lot of bridesmaids. Through dresses. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's incredibly gratifying to, to be recognized uh, for your work, especially in, you know, in, in nonfiction editing. And, and you know, for reality shows that people tend to look down their nose at, for you know, for the Academy or for anybody to recognize that there is actually a tremendous amount of skill that goes into these things is is really gratifying. So it's it's a lot of fun to be on a show that is that recognized. I don't think people realize how much work goes into editing even a simple uh, piece of work. You know. Yeah. Well, the ironic thing about editing is the the better the editing is, the more invisible it is. Whether it's you know narrative or or unscripted, it doesn't matter. So I think that if you're noticing the editing and you're talking about the editing, then uh, you've actually done something wrong. So I think that if you can if you can make it as seamless as possible, and you can play with pace and tone and make it exciting where you need to and slow things down where you need to then that that's really where the the skill comes in plus you you know you really need to like repetition and precision being, precision yeah being being locked in a room with the same episode of tv for you know <laughs> weeks sometimes months you gotta really enjoy it what else have you worked on uh, you know, I've done a lot of uh, high-toned documentaries that no one's ever heard of. Uh, you know, I did a ten-part series on autism, and uh, I did a really? special on uh, combat canines serving in Afghanistan. So if, if I mentioned that stuff, and I get a blank stare at a cocktail party. So I have to say, well, have you ever heard of Fear Factor? And then, it's, oh yeah, and the, the Bachelor. Oh, of course, and you know, Wipeout. Yes, my kids love it. So I, I get a lot of that. So. <laughs> 
Christy likes to watch trash TV, as she calls it, <laughs> reality TV. Yeah. Below the deck and uh, Housewives and stuff like that. Oh, so yeah. I, I have to ask her to start watching the credits. She might stumble across something. It sounds like you've done a few of those. <laughs> the, worst, yeah. the worst of those I've ever experienced, I, I ran into somebody at one of the noir at the bars that I do down here in L.A., and uh, a, a woman, uh, an editor, like a book editor down here that I've known for a long time, she showed up and she apparently has an old yoga video that she does every now and then. And she let it play as she was you know, rolling up her yoga mat or whatever and accidentally glanced over at the credits. And to my shame, there was one weekend where I came in and did a favor for a producer and cut this yoga video. And she was like, I saw your name. And I was like, oh, no, that's not the height of my career. Please don't mention that. <laughs> that one is not on the resume. <laughs> well, let's, uh, you mentioned Noir at the Bar. Um, I, you know, I know what that is. I've been to one. It was great. Uh, everybody might not know what they are. What, what, is, what is Noir at the Bar? So Noir at the Bar started in Philadelphia. A guy named Peter Rozovsky decided to uh, put this alliterative title together and just do a night out at a bar and have, he started originally with just had one reader. I think Dwayne Swarzynski was his first guest. Oh, good choice. Yeah. Uh, it, Peter did it for a little while. I, you know, he only did a handful of events and then it sort of fell away. And then uh, two writers out of St. Louis, uh, Scott Phillips and Jedediah Ayers, great writers and, and really great guys, picked up the mantle and started doing it there as sort of a group reading. They would have five or six readers come in. They would do it, uh, you know, had a uh, one of the local indie bookstores would come by and sell books. So I was aware of it through there. I'd never actually been to one since in, in St. Louis. But then it's good grief. It, about six years ago now, a little over six years ago, the L.A. scene started to fracture a little bit with the closing of the bookstores. So I decided, hey, I think this would be the kind of thing that would be really popular here. And it would give me an excuse to see my writer friends and to hang out and, you know, do it almost more as a social event than a, than a book selling event or anything. So I emailed Scott and Jed and I sort of asked permission because I didn't want to just steal the idea. And they said, yes, you have our blessing, go forward. And uh, I contacted a couple of other local LA writers to say, hey, do you think we could pull this off? And everyone was really supportive, really into the idea. And here we are six years later, we do them about every three or four months. You know, yeah, we I was going to say, it looks like about once a quarter. Yeah, we, you know, we have five or six readers uh, come out and we've hosted touring authors, which is great to give people another place to stop. Again, you know, so many bookstores are closing down. The idea of a book tour is getting, you know, less and less of a, a reality for a lot of authors. So if we can give them a place to stop where we routinely have crowds of, you know, 40, 50 people. It's wow, a, that's a good crowd. It's a, and it's a really receptive crowd. They're really into it. Everyone's having a great time. We have this great bar locally that's that's hosted us ever since the beginning. And it's it's a lot of work, but it, it's a lot of fun. And I think it really brings the crime writing community together. And the only thing you need to know about how successful it is, is that since I started the L.A. as, you know, almost the first franchise of this thing, it is everywhere now. I mean, it's mm -hmm. literally all over the country. It's in Canada. It's across across the pond. Now they've done them in Scotland and England. It's so it, yeah, I did mine in Seattle, so it's yeah. definitely moved around. And, and every, you know, everyone has a blast. And like I say, it's like it, it's it's just a great night out for readers and writers together. And, and it's a way to hopefully see some of your favorite writers, get a book signed, hear them read. And also, 
hear a lot of new voices. You know, we always try in LA, we try to have people who are a lot more established to you know be more of a draw, but then we'll put you know a couple people on the bill who've never read publicly, who've only had short stories published to give people a start and a, and a leg up. Cause I know uh, I've appreciated all the help I've gotten throughout yeah. my career. So, and you know. can never really pay those people back that helped you. I mean, that you can pay it forward for sure. Absolutely. And to see you know, readers that have come out and done their first reading with us and then they're back again, you know, two years later and they've got their first novel published. And uh, that's just so cool. Yeah, for sure. That is cool. Um, that's not the only social thing that you've got going on. And what comes to write when it comes to writers though, uh, you and uh, Steve Loudon, S.W. Loudon, host your own uh, podcast. Yeah, I'm I'm a boy who can't say no, so I, <laughs> I, I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm just going to let that part pass. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I I described your show um, as as a, as podcasts go, as literary podcasts go kind of like that early morning drive on the radio where you have like really engaging hosts who do things pretty quick you know you short shorter segments a lot of humor a lot of upbeat uh sort of uh, of an approach uh still a lot of meat to what's happening but uh, uh definitely not this not a slow burn not like the conversation we're having but a lot more bam 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 you know, what, well, what, and, is and, that fair and- yeah, it's fair, and and we're goofy. We, I mean, we we try to we try to just have fun and keep it light and and funny, and, you know. Because I, I think in our discussions early on, we tried to think, okay, who's who's our target audience, and we didn't want it to be just other writers. So we rarely talk about process. We don't. We try not to talk about you know the nitty gritty of writing or, or giving advice or any of that kind of stuff because we want readers to be able to listen to it. we want and you know again it's another place to give authors who have a new book out a platform to promote that book it's a place for us to talk to authors that we just like their writing and like as people and and want more people to know about them uh you know so it's it's been a, a kind of thing where steve and i are so of the similar mind uh, from our music backgrounds, you know, we both used to play in bands and we both were very much in sort of a, a, a that rock and roll scene and punk rock scene that was like, oh, OK, well, you know, maybe the Whiskey Go-Go doesn't want to give us a gig. Well, OK, we'll find a place. We'll do a gig and we'll 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 just do it ourselves. So that was the thing that we shared in common that allowed us to think, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of podcasts and I think I have a different way that we can do this and be a little different and stand out. And there was nothing preventing us from being like, well, okay, then let's just do it. We're, we're, the, we're both very much that kind of guy. Like, well, okay, I want to do this. So I'm going to make it happen. And we made it happen. Well, you, and you've had like seven episodes now or something like that. Nine. Yeah. Nine, nine episodes. And I mean, you guys are funnier than shit. And even when <laughs> your jokes are corny, like purposefully corny. They're funny, corny. They don't fall flat. I mean, you guys well, do a great. I, you do a great job. Well, thank you. I, and I do edit a lot, so I, all of our bad jokes, I, I cut those out immediately. <laughs> so there is a lot of misses for every joke that lands. Yeah, um, you mentioned that you were a bass player. What's uh, what's the story with that? Uh, I'm a guitar player. I, oh, I, guitar. I, I played guitar and uh, and I sang. You can't see my air quotes on the podcast, but uh, I I screamed a lot. I yelled. Um, so a punk band then? Yeah, we were. I mean, I, I played in five different bands over, over the years. So everything from 
uh, you know, straight up hardcore band when I was in high school to an acoustic duet when I was in college that I just did with a friend of mine just for the heck of it. And then after I moved to LA, the, the, the two most serious bands that actually got you know, indie record deals and, and put out records and stuff were very, I don't know, I, I would call it more like post-punk and math rock. Some people, people compared us a lot to bands like Helmet or Fugazi or, you know, it's sort of post Nirvana screaming and shouting. And we, and we, and we were weird, you know, we did a lot of strange times, time signature changes. And, and we had a saxophone player and that confused people. People did not like us, I guess is the summary of all this. <laughs> we were not popular in any shape or form, especially in LA, in Los Angeles, we just confounded audiences. They did not know what to make of us. It just didn't fit into a particular uh, niche, huh? No, because this was, you know, mid mid to late 90s. Uh, and I think people were still sort of in a hair metal hangover. But playing around L.A. was still very much in that sense of like, you know, we're going to put seven bands on in a night. And all they want you to do is hustle your friends in to buy a bunch of drinks and then get the hell out because the next band is there with their friends. And it was it's all the best shows we ever played were out of town in like oh, small, right. small college towns and the second iteration of the band, you know, our bass player left and moved back east. We got a new bass player and we changed our name and everything. But um, we, I started making a real concerted effort because I was fell into the role of kind of default manager slash booking agent. And I said, you can't okay, say no. no, I can't because I can't say no. And, and and my whole my whole being is just like screw it, I'll do it myself. You know, because that way I'm responsible for everything, and I just I I don't like giving responsibility over to anybody else. But that's my own weird that you would be an editor with that. Yeah. Strange, <laughs> strange that I like to control and manipulate the reality of the world, <laughs> but, you know, but, but I made a concerted effort to be like, okay, look, I, I'm going to, we're going to open for bands that I like and that I know are sort of like-minded. So I, I, I'm sick and tired of being in a room where the band before us is, you know, some weird emo band and then we come on and people are like what and then the band after us is you know a reggae band or whatever i i, I you know i tried to focus up and, and try to in the same way that like you know when we're writing i think we might have ideas that are outside of the crime and mystery genre but in a way i learned especially through screenwriting is that people don't necessarily want you to be eclectic people people want you to stay in your lane a little bit so you it really behooves any writer to pick the lane that they're going to be happiest with for the longest amount of yeah. time if you want to build a career yeah, if you're going to swerve out of your lane it needs to be like one dramatic swerve and you're back in your lane then people can go oh my god they swerved out of their lane that was so yeah. brave and so and that's what pen names are for <laughs> uh, unless you're you know unless you get to be giant and you know you're sure. dennis lehane or something like that he, he you know pe people who've earned the right to flex their muscles a little bit then yes but for guys like you and i i think if you know if we wrote you know romantic comedy or something people would be a little confused so do you think that uh that your musical background and the, the being a, a musician has that had any impact on uh you know on you, on you as a writer i mean uh, did you write songs as well? Yeah, no, I, I wrote a ton of songs. And, and process similar for you, or is it a very different process? I think it's a very different process. Uh, I mean, lyrically, my lyrics tended to not make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> I, was, I don't know if I was just sort of, you know, fresh out of college or still in college and trying to 
be deep or whatever. I think it was more like I just I liked combinations of words more for how they sounded than how what than what they meant. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I think th- if anything, the biggest takeaway I got from playing music was definitely a sense of like screw this i'll just do it you know just do it and make it happen and realizing some some success from that you know not like monetarily but just seeing the process work in terms of like i have an idea i'm not going to wait for somebody else to tell me that it's okay to do this idea i'm just going to do it and i'm going to put it out there and and i'm going to share it with people um i think the idea of performing on stage in front of people is something that confounds so many writers still like you see people who are so uncomfortable on a microphone if they have to read something and 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 i you can't do anything to me in the writing world that could be more potentially embarrassing than what i did on stage in this loud screaming rock band you know i i used to i mean i would just make horrible god-awful noises on my guitars and you know, to, to the point like i i had a vibrator like one of those metal vibrator that looks like a giant bullet and i would run that over the strings it had like the adjustable uh, speeds and that would just make this wonderful terrible awful noise on the string and so it was things like that it's like you can't embarrass me <laughs> so it prepared but, you for the literary world <laughs> absolutely absolutely I, you know and i i just think i i think in in a in a way it's if you're making music that that people don't really like, but you're just going to forge ahead and believe in what you're doing, it does free you up a little bit creatively to not care. I mean, look, the other thing about like bad reviews, nobody could ever say anything worse about one of my books than they said about some of my bands. I mean, we had we had fans and we had people that liked the other musicians always seemed to like us because they would get that what you know the more complicated things that we were trying to do. And I had people really compliment my guitar playing when it was totally unwarranted. But the, the greatest compliment I ever got on my guitar playing was somebody who was talking about how great I was, and I was like, no, no, like you don't understand. I, I barely took I took lessons for like a month from a friend of mine's brother. I don't even I can't read music. I don't even know the names of the chords I'm playing half the time. And his comment was like, well, you know, you you fake it well because you look like you're so good that you've gotten to the point where you're deconstructing guitar playing, <laughs> which I took a tremendous compliment. <laughs> but we had, I mean, we had, we had people uh, reviewed one of the albums that, that literally the guy threatened to, if he ever saw us, he was going to back up over us in his car. <laughs> you can't go oh a one-star Amazon review because somebody, you know, like, oh, there's too much cursing in this book. Ah, rolls right off my back. <laughs> wow, that's, <whew. laughs> yeah, that's, well, you're definitely prepared, I tell you. Uh, yeah. Sometimes those reviews, you know, actually, I, I'm pretty good about it, too. I mean, you don't spend 20 years in law enforcement and having people say the things that they say to you and not, don't develop a thick skin. But uh, the only ones that ever bother me are the ones that, um, that, that are unfair and I don't mean unfair because I don't agree with their opinion I mean when they like write a review that says uh that that they're obviously reviewing a completely different book you know like they talk about the main character character Tess Darbonville or something like this (laughs) you know uh this takes place on the New England coast I'm like it's it's in Texas and it's a (laughs) those bother me for some reason because they're just not fair I mean you don't like it that's your opinion. I mean, you know, well, like the dude said, right? That's like your opinion, man. 
Yeah. Oh, you're also someone, I mean, people have pointed guns at you. How can someone yeah. really get under your skin <laughs> yeah. in a, on the comment board? You know? Yeah. Yeah. They, they really can't. I mean, I think, yeah. uh, I think we're, we're similar in that regard. Well, let, let's talk about a few of your books real quick here. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, just run down the list here. Um, tell me about the McGraw family series. So that started with the book Rum Runners, and uh, it's set in Iowa in present day. And I think what I was really trying to do with that, I, you know, I write criminals, and, and they're very much crime novels in the sense that I don't write about cops, I don't write about detectives, I don't really write about good guys. Um, so I tend to write the perspective of the of the bad guys, but I, I'm always very very conscious that. You know, for me, when I'm reading a book, I really I still have to root for the character. I, I or at least I want to be invested. So if someone is so despicable and so vile, I, I can't get into a book. So I really work hard to make my bad guy characters still kind of sympathetic and, and maybe you kind of root for them. So with the McGraws, it's it's a multi generational story. So it's it's about you know, there's this family of drivers. So, so they, they're not the top of the food chain in this little podunk crime family in Iowa, but they do all the driving, whatever needs to be done. Do you, you need something illicit delivered? I'll take it. You need something picked up and, you know, a guy driven to go bump somebody off, I'll take him. So this family has been doing that for the local crime family, the Stanleys for years and years. But now, Tucker McGraw is, you know, he, he didn't want anything to do with the family business. So he's turned his back on this crime legacy and he sells insurance. I, I purposely wanted to say, okay, what's the complete opposite of a life of crime? And, and somebody that his father and his grandfather would look at him with just disgust. Like, seriously, you turned your back on this to go sell insurance? But, uh, you know, the, the short pitch is, is that uh, Tucker's father goes missing during the course of a job. And then the crime family that they work for comes to Tucker and they say, hey, listen, he, when he went missing, he was carrying a lot of valuable merchandise and you're on the hook for it. So not only does he need to go find his father because he wants to go find his father, but he doesn't want to be held responsible for this $10 million debt. So the only person he can turn to is his grandfather who you know was sort of the original criminal drivers driving model Cal t's right <laughs> yeah so this guy calvin who uh you know comes in and and shows how much ass kicking an 80 year old crime veteran can still do so uh and then calvin was really kind of the breakout character from run runners he he seemed to get the most attention i i heard the most from readers like oh my god i really love calvin he's so great people people love a sassy old guy who can who can still kick ass uh so when it came time to write uh, another book it was actually the publisher who suggested because I, I had outlines for for a trilogy going forward in the story and the, the publisher said hey would you think about a prequel so i thought actually this is great because i could push calvin to the forefront so Leadfoot, this book that's nominated for an Anthony Award, takes place in the early 70s where Calvin is kind of in his prime and it's uh, and then you get to see his son, Webb, who is the guy who goes missing in Rum Runners. Now you get to see him on his first job. He's you know just 19 years old and going on his first job. So that's uh, that's the world of the of the McGraws. And I have a deal with Eric Campbell, the publisher of Down and Out Books, that if Leadfoot does win the Anthony Award, I am obligated to write a third book. So if you well, want to well, see a third McGraw book, vote well, early and vote often. 
<laughs> Will that be a continuation from the, from the first one or? Yeah, well, I, th I think the thing that I'll do just because I like to keep it complicated is it'll actually probably be in the middle and be in the early 80s. Oh. So the, the the good thing that's the good thing now is that you can kind of jump in and you can start with either run runners or lead foot. Yeah. It kind of doesn't matter which one you start with. Mm -hmm. But I figure that's oh that's too easy on readers and why not throw a little wrench in the that's works? A, that's a cool idea. I, I've read run run, uh, run run runners. I loved it. I gave it to my dad, who's a big car guy. He loves cars. Oh. Um, but I haven't read read uh, Leadfoot yet. I was wasn't actually aware that it was a prequel, so I'm looking yeah. forward to it. You're behind the times. I am way behind the times. Well, I'm not <laughs> super far behind. I read Criminal Economics. You, oh. sent, you sent me an arc of that, I believe. There you go. Um, I love that. What, uh, tell tell the listeners what that's about. Well, Criminal Economics is, was sort of a, an anomaly for me. I wrote it, and I immediately thought, well, this is not a very mainstream book. <laughs> it's, it's entirely too— It, it definitely too... isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy, and I, and I love it. And I think if you're a fan of someone like Victor Gishler, uh, Dwayne Swarzynski, guys like that, I think that you'll you'll like it. And I think I was definitely channeling those far superior writers when I was when I was doing it. But what I did was I I published I've published a lot of books and and I published a lot in very quick succession. So when my agent was out shopping, I think it was when he was shopping Rum Runners, I had to sort of sit on this other book of mine because you don't want to flood the market and whatnot so what i did originally was i said okay i don't think anyone's ever going to really buy this thing so I, but I, I like it and i want to get it out there so i did a limited edition of 100 copies 100 print copies that i hand numbered and signed and i said i'll do this just to see you know for for my loyal readers here's a little you know one-off thing that they only you can have if you really are interested uh and then the, with the hopes of you know it'll gain cult status or, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll make a few bucks on eBay after I die. But other people, some indie publishers did actually start to sniff around and, and kept asking about it. And so I ended up publishing it as an ebook only with uh, a label out of Europe called Blasted Heath, which used to be run uh, by Alan Guthrie, who's another fantastic writer that if you like him, you will like criminal economics. I, I could easily see why Alan liked this book. It was right up his alley. And then when Blasted Heath went away, they they closed up shop. Uh, that's when again Eric Campbell from Down and Out, who you know I had this relationship with now, he said, "Hey, can I do Criminal Economics? I really want to put that book out." And it so now it's officially out in print and ebook, the full edition. If you have one of those original 100 limited editions, those are still special because it's got a new cover and it's and it's a new thing. But uh, there you go. It's it, it's full of mayhem and and madness, wouldn't you say? I'm absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it, it's, there's not a single likable character in that <laughs> entire book. And what's cool about that is that therefore you like everybody the same. Right? Yeah. I mean, oh, that's uh, interesting. Uh, actually, I liked the kind of, uh, I'm forgetting the character's name now, not the guy with the scar, but the other guy in the Slick. Uh, there's Slick and Bo. Bo. Yeah. I liked, yeah. I liked Bo because he was so laid back, but he was still a crook, you know, and he still is like, well, you know, I'm still going to do what I got to do, but he wasn't yeah. so intense. And, <laughs> and, uh, but Slick's girlfriend, she was playing the angles. The cop uh, that was working him was playing the angles. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you had the creepy kid that, uh, was the, <laughs> the landlady's kid that was always staring at, the, I mean, there's a lot going on in that book. Uh, yeah. and it's a fast read. It's a real fast read. Um, I read it. Uh, that is one of the few books I've read uh, on my phone. Oh. Uh, when I was traveling uh, at the time, I was reading it on the airplane and so forth. And uh, 
Uh, I was glad it was it, it flowed so well and it was such a quick read because you know you get interrupted all the time and it was really easy to pick it back up ten minutes that's later good. or two hours later or whatever it was. So that's good. Good to know it holds up. I think the first book of yours I ever read though was The Devil Doesn't Want Me. Yes, uh, and that's one of your Lars and Shane books, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's the first one of those. What What's the premise of that? So Lars is a hitman, and he's uh, worked for a prominent East Coast crime family for his entire career. And it opens where he's been on a single job hunting down a guy who turns state's evidence. He's been on this job for 17 years and always one step behind tracking this guy down. He'll get side jobs uh, phoned in uh, while he's still on this assignment, but he's... His primary focus has been hunting down this guy, Mitch. They call him Mitch the Snitch. Um, and he's been sort of relegated. Now he lives in New Mexico. So he's just, he's just, he's a man in exile and, he, and he's growing older. He's approaching 50. So. Okay, be careful. He's, he's yeah, middle aged, okay? He's, yeah, well, he's. <laughs> Yeah. When, when I when I wrote it, I was still in my early 40s. So 50 seemed, uh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the he the, the power structure of this crime family back east is now changing because the guy who originally hired Lars is now he's growing old and his son is going to take over. So with this young blood comes Lars's replacement. So they send this young buck out. Lars has no respect for this kid. He's a loose cannon. He's goes around you know, screwing up everything. And yet he comes armed with all this digital information. So he immediately finds Mitch. So after 17 years, this kid shows up and within a week, they know where this guy is. So, but then Lars sort of slowly reali realizes that he's kind of lost the taste for this. He's, he's been out there doing this so long. And then when he's finally confronted with the idea of completing the job, he doesn't want to do it. So that, of course, puts him at odds with his bosses back east. Uh, and then there's a, a, a loose cannon is introduced in the form of uh, Mitch's daughter, Shane, who uh, Lars now sees as his responsibility. And he sort of takes her on the run from all the forces that are out to get them. When I read this book, you know, it was pretty straightforward at first. I mean, the setup that you described is exactly what you read. But then you get to a part, and I'm not going to ruin it for the people that are listening, but there is a part where, uh, what's the what's the other guy's name? Trent. Kids? Trent, where he is at a bar, and he has a gal with him out kind of back, and he asks her to perform a little bit of oral sex there. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, you know, this is pretty, you know, I... And then you totally flip the tables on what actually happens. I won't ruin it for anybody. But it was right then in that scene, I was like, whoa, this guy is a different kind of writer. And that, that kind of stuff, that those surprising, you know, okay, we're going to make a right-hand turn here. Whoa, we just turned a sharp left and then back straight again. And I didn't expect either of those things. That's actually kind of a trademark of your style, I think. I well, thank you. Realize. Um but uh, how many of them uh, are in this series now, the Lars and Shane? A three or? The, there... there are three. The third is, has yet to come out. That third will be out uh, in February of next year. And it has been such a long, crooked road for this series. I feel so bad for Lars and Shane because I, I love them dearly. It was uh, Devil Doesn't Want Me was one of the earliest novels that I wrote. But uh, it has been to two different publishers now, both of which 
died unceremoniously underneath the series. So the Devils and Wami came out originally with a division of uh, Dutton Penguin called Guilt Edge Mysteries as an ebook only imprint that folded. So then I got that back. Two hundred and eighty steps moved in. They wanted that series, and I had already written the second one. So what's I, that called? Uh, that one's called uh, the the uh, the devil. Uh, no, uh, when the devil comes to call. And then the third one's called The Devil at Your Door. But so the now those first two books came out with 280 steps. They were out there. I wrote the third book, but it was quite literally a week before that third book was due to come out. And I was like, oh, thank goodness I put a, because you know, it's a trilogy. It, it, it ends and it ends and it's over. But it, it was years getting to that point. And I thought, oh, good. I'm fine. I'm so happy because I'm really proud of the books. I really like them. I think Lars is exactly what I was talking about earlier. He's one of those guys. Like, he's, he's a killer. He's a, he's a paid killer. But all the feedback I've gotten from readers is that they genuinely like this guy. Yeah, he's like, likable. He's, he's a likable yeah. guy. So uh, <clears throat> I, I think you can get past the murder stuff at least. <laughs> which I'm amazed that a lot of people are, are pretty easily able to. Yeah, I, I should mention that The Devil Doesn't Want Me is the only novel of mine that my wife has read out of 24 novels that I've written. Uh, it's the only one she read. And she said, you're really good at describing things and it's a little too much. So thank you. But no, thank you. That's I'm done. <laughs> so, wow. So for whatever that's worth. <laughs> well, you can't but, you can't even lure her in with the uh, collaboration that we did because uh, there's a lot of description on, on, on in both our chapters. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. There's a yeah, couple yeah. scenes in there that I think would probably. <laughs> yeah, like, honey, just read the penis blood scene. Honey. Would you just read that for me? <laughs> hey, for the record, that was one of uh, Eric's chapters. I didn't have any penises in any of my chapters. Hey, that kills at Noir at the Bar. Let oh, me tell man, you. I can imagine. I can imagine that is one of the most hilarious scenes i've ever read uh, but you know i will say that um uh, you don't use beta readers but i do um i have about uh actually i've got about eight or ten people but i usually use the same four to six uh, when i sent the getaway list which is our third book in that series uh, yeah. it'll be out uh i believe in august of 2018 yep that's what i hear um, i sent that you know, finished first draft out to the beta readers and universally to a man or woman, there's a scene in there. Again, it's a beatner scene. I know the one. <laughs> uh, involving, uh, I don't even know if I want to ruin it. I, and it is hilarious and disgusting. And, uh, uh, and everybody loved it. And it's not as brutal as the, as the one in the first book. But no. It's every bit as funny. Um, and that's really, that's Cam's whole, I mean, his nickname in the book ends up being Slaughterhouse, you know, yeah. because he, he does it. But you, you do describe things really well and you, you did a good <laughs> job in the Lars and Shane series. I, I've only read the first one. I, I'm looking forward to reading the, the second and the third one, um, especially since that was the first one of yours that, that, that I read. The weirdest of all the books that you've written, at least I, I have, I, I, based on the title alone, I haven't read it yet. But you wrote one called The Stripper Pole at the End of the World. Did I get that yes. right? Yes. Yeah. It looks like a zombie, post-apocalyptic, one-legged hooker or stripper story. I mean, is that <laughs> anywhere in the ballpark? Oh, that old chestnut. Uh, yeah. I, it, well, it's not zombies. It's cannibals. Uh, and there's, there's an, I mean, it's it was a lot of fun to write that book. It's definitely an outlier among my catalog. But uh, I, I do 
totally stand behind it. I, I think it's I think it's some of the the best writing I've done. Uh, you know, it was part of a series. I had done two novellas for the Fight Card series, which are mm-hmm. these sort of boxing pulp uh, mm-hmm. books that uh, a guy named Paul Bishop and Mel Odom uh, started the Fight Club thing, and they invited me in. So, and I had a ton of fun doing those. Love those books. And Mel uh, had started this other thing uh, called Schlock Zone. And the way he pitched it was, you know, think of your favorite, like, B-movie from the 80s, horror, sci-fi, you know, whatever sort of genre film, and and try to write something like that. And you're speaking my language now. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, came of age in the 80s. I worked at a video store. I went to film school. This, this, is, this is my wheelhouse. <laughs> you might baby. have to stop and explain what a video store is to some younger listeners. <laughs> I'm so sad. <laughs> <laughs> brick and mortar netflix (laughs) yes exactly but so uh yeah so stripper pole at the end of the world is uh, it is a post-apocalypse so it basically takes place after like a a big financial and societal collapse in the united states and it's society has just gone feral Uh, so there are roving bands of cannibals uh along among the streets uh and then there's the the you know heroine of the story is this girl who during the, the collapse and in the middle of her wedding got attacked she ended up losing her leg half of an arm she's got a metal plate in her head um, and she she's a mess yeah she's a mess but she but she still is she's a survivor and she hears about uh, a place that a strip joint that hires these damaged women because now that there's so many people with all these deformities and, and strange there's sort of this weird fetish that's developed so this guy runs a strip joint and every every girl who works at the strip joint has some sort of thing one girl is you know 80 percent of her body is burns and you know other amputees and so forth so i don't know why i thought this was a good idea but it sort of struck me. So it ends up, you know, she travels to this to this strip joint and ends up being kind of this closed room action piece where the strip place is uh, is besieged by this team of cannibals. Everyone inside from the strippers to the customers to the owners, they're fighting for their lives inside. So it's a sort of bizarre cast of characters in this really extreme uh, scenario and it, it's very over the top, very intentionally over the top in that sort of '80s cheesy horror movie sort of way. I mean, my uh, uh, the perfect example I think is there's a scene where somebody has to escape uh, off of a off of a roof, and the there's no rope or anything. She, she she's missing a leg. She can't jump, you know, from the roof of a building. So the only thing that she can improvise is to use the intestines of the dead body next to her as a rope to scale down the side of the building. <laughs> So that'll give you an idea of, of kind of what uh, what the story is about. It oh, must have been a blast to write, though. It's so fun, yeah. And just the idea of like, I I think that was the one where I think I started with the title first, and I was like, okay, I have to write a story that lives up to this title. Oh, that's a good title. It grabs you. I mean, it jumps out at you as being yeah. completely different than your other your other work. We'll get back to Eric Beatner for our final segment in just a few moments, but uh, now is the time in the show where we consult the experts, and by experts I mean exactly that, uh, bookstore owners and uh, employees of bookstores who are uh, absolutely the experts on what you should be thinking about reading and helping you find what uh, kind of books you might like uh, that you might otherwise not be aware of. 
Uh, let's start with Jim Thompson from uh, the Seattle area. Jim is an author and a member of the Mystery Writers Association. In fact, he's pretty prolific on their, uh, in their Northwest chapter. Uh, and if that's not enough to convince you that uh, you ought to listen to Jim, well, he's also a professional uh, freelance editor. So uh, how's it going, Jim? Really good. Thanks, Frank. So you've got a book you'd like to recommend. I do. I really like to throw the spotlight on crime novels that uh, don't get the attention they deserve. And one such novel is probably my favorite of 2017. It's called The Lock Picker, and it's by a guy named Leonard Chang. Uh, Chang is uh, the author of several books I haven't read yet, and he works as a writer and producer on the FX Channel series Snowfall, which, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's about the origins of the crack cocaine epidemic in the early 1980s. The Lockpicker is a little different. It's the story of a guy named Jake, uh, who is a young career jewel thief, and uh, he commits a burglary in Seattle, actually, with a volatile new associate, and the burglary goes violently wrong, and Jake winds up fleeing to San Francisco with the loot to lay low with his brother. The brother is kind of a tech bro type whose career is going sideways along marriage, and Jake finds himself falling hard for his soon-to-be ex-sister-in-law, who finds herself drawn to Jake's criminal side. Meanwhile, the associate isn't quite as dead as Jake thinks he is, and he's prepared to scorch the earth in his quest for revenge. Now, what really distinguishes this novel is the details. The lockpicker is not your typical high-octane thriller that formulaically drifts from chase to shootout to sexcapade. It actually takes the time to study the minutiae of the lockpicker's trade, and I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who really geeks out on the details of a crime. For instance, I love heist stories. They're all about grappling hooks and stopwatches and abandoned warehouses and black turtlenecks. And uh, in a lockpicker, you'll learn all about rake picks and snapping picks and tension bars and tumblers. You'll learn how to tell good jewelry from junk and how stolen goods are fenced and how step by step to track down someone who doesn't want to be tracked down. Um, I don't know how, how the author came across this unimpeachable authority over these things, but it's impressive in a way you often see in a lot of crime fiction, which often glosses over those kinds of details to get to the scenes of high conflict. Um, I'll just wrap up by saying that more than a criminal study, The Lockpicker is a very deep character study. He makes a lot of room, Leonard Chang does, for flawed, fully dimensional characters with really intriguing weaknesses and even more intriguing backstories. You would really be hard-pressed to find any of the usual crime fiction tropes or cliches in The Lockpicker, and you, sh you sure won't find a single false step in the plausibility of its plotting. It's a novel that really honors its ambitions without ever putting the plot on pause. It's an all but perfect piece of storycraft, and I just cannot recommend The Lockpicker highly enough. Well, you've convinced me, and I'm guessing there's at least one or two people out there that are similar, <laughs> similarly convinced. Uh, you make a great case for it. And that's The Lockpicker by Leonard... Kang. C-H-A-N-G. Okay, Kang. Well, thanks, Jim. Uh, it's always always good to hear from those folks. They know what they're talking about. They are passionate about the uh, genre, 
and uh, they, they always seem to me to be like these uh, super readers uh, that uh, just the feedback that they give to, to authors is just uh, it's insightful and it's ex they're excited about it and uh, I, I hope that comes through when you when you listen to them talk about the books that they recommend. That said, uh, let's let's go back to uh, Eric Beatner for our final segment. You're a bit of a of a Renaissance man, I would say. Um, I want to read real quickly the a paragraph from your web page, your, your uh, <laughs> ericbeatner.com, yeah. uh, your bio. Uh, the last uh, uh, paragraph says, I've toured as a musician. We've talked about that. Yeah. Uh, painted, written screenplays, acted in short films, been to China twice, uh, came back with some kids, I think, right? Wait, yeah, both times. <laughs> Fished in the Mississippi, once met Barry Manilow. <laughs> did you steal his wardrobe? I did not. Okay. I, I insulted him to his face, apparently, according to my wife. <laughs> Seriously? How, <laughs> how, how did that happen? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, the, the short version is uh, it was one year for my wife's birthday, which is in December. Uh, I, I took her to a new concert every week of the, of the month. So it was the, the culminating concert was Barry Manilow at the uh, Universal Amphitheater uh, the week of in between Christmas and New Year. So it was like a big you know holiday extravaganza. And we ended up going to like a pre-show party hosted by a radio station we won backstage passes so we're all excited my wife is is getting into her you know late 70s nostalgia but i'd taken her to all these concerts and it was bands that she liked and, and stuff that she was really excited about and i was so excited to hand her these barry manilow tickets for the big reveal and when she opened them she was I don't know. Disappointed is not the word. I think she was just confused. She was like, really? You're taking me to see Barry Man? Like, do I want to see Barry Man? She eventually came around <laughs> and got really excited. But her initial reaction was not the jumping up and down and, oh, my she God. She was underwhelmed. Yeah. I, I thought this was a lifelong dream. Who, you know, she grew up, you know, who grew up in the 70s without singing along to Mandy and all these songs? Like, even punk rock hardcore me was like, oh, no, he's, he's, <laughs> a, talented, the he's a talented songwriter. <laughs> you, you can't go wrong. Yeah. So we get backstage, we we shake Barry Manilow's hands and I make, you know, I, what do I have to say to Barry Manilow other than the only story I have about Barry Manilow, which is tell him, you know, my wife really wasn't that excited when I first gave her the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and she's kicking me in the shit. She's like, what are you doing? <laughs> he, was, he was so confused. He just sort of gave me a blank stare. Like, what? And I was so like, oh, but we're really, we're thrilled to be here. Thank you, know. So yeah, that was, that was not uh, my finest funny. moment. So you need to change this on your uh, website that says I once insulted Barry. Yeah, I probably should. <laughs> uh, directed films and music videos. Yep. Uh, what videos? Uh, your own or? Uh, some of my own, which are terrible. And then I, I started uh, for a while. I was directing videos for a bunch of bands uh, just a, a around L.A., sort of at the dawn of, uh, of YouTube, but before HD took over. So now the videos look all very cheap and, uh, and old fashioned <laughs> compared to what people can do on a budget these days. But had a great time, met a lot of really great musicians and, uh, you know, got to flex a little bit of those film school muscles. Those are a lot of fun. You said you directed films, uh, short films, full length films. Yeah, uh, short films. I, I've I made a film. Uh, the the sort of biggest endeavor I did was uh, a film that's it's about an hour long, which in retrospect was a mistake. I should have just went ahead and gone for the extra twenty odd minutes. Um, but you know, did the film festival circuit, uh, won an award for that, and uh, what, what kind of film was it? It's a it's a, a very well. It's called Taking Your Life. 
so it's not a comedy uh it's not it's but it's not a crime drama or anything it's it's a very sort of heavy drama about an elderly woman who uh, approaches a documentary filmmaker and says you should make a film about me and he says well okay why in the world would i make a film about you she says well because next week i'm going to kill myself and so it follows the this documentary filmmaker as he's making this film about this woman thinking, oh, this is great. This is going to make my career. And then his producing partner, who's like, what? Are, we can't do this. You can't let this sweet woman kill herself. And so all the drama that ensues from that. So every time we would screen at festivals, it would uh, end with copious amounts of tears. And that made me feel really good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah. Directed films and music videos. Your name's been on TV over a hundred times. Now you're cheating because it's all the editing pieces, right? Well, yeah, yeah. It's okay. yeah. I'm sure it's probably in the two or three hundred at this point. You own a real human skull. I do. I'm looking at it right is now. That, is that true? Yeah. Seriously, whose skull is it? Uh, I don't know. They say it's a female. Uh, How did you come to own a, a skull? Oh, there's places you can go to buy skulls, Frank. You don't know this? <laughs> no, that's creepy, man. <laughs> yeah, it's very creepy. I, I have a lot of creepy stuff in my office that my daughters uh, are confused by. I have a, uh, I have a bunch of weird stuff in jars. See, this is this is where we should add video. But I have like I have a, a fetal pig in a jar of formaldehyde that's wrapped in a snake, and that really confuses a lot of people. That's bizarre. <laughs> I embrace my dark side, Frank. Yeah. I'm not ashamed of it. I thought you did it by writing cam scenes and criminal economics. No. I think that's just bleeding off the pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Keeping you from going psycho on us or something. (laughs) So the pig wrapped up in a snake? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, But I I, I know it's weird. At least least there's that. I know it's it's strange. All right. As long as you know. So let me see. Let me go back over see if I missed anything. Uh, you you paint. You paint. You said uh, you do some. Painting. I yeah. I I I haven't had a chance to do it much uh, in recent years just because uh, we ran out of wall space. Um, but I've I've done a couple of art shows. Uh, just you know, just one of those things. That's it's just it's a hobby. I'm not trained, um, and I can't paint things. I, I paint abstract uh, stuff. So I'm I'm completely untalented with a brush, but I'm good at composition and color. So I've, I've actually sold, you know, a couple of, a very small handful of paintings. And it was just something that, you know, I had an opportunity to take part in a few art shows. So I did it just to sort of say I could do it. And see, most uh, people, they do painting as a hobby and they have two or three very bad paintings that are hidden in the garage and you decide you're going to do this and you have art shows and sell your paintings. Most people like me want to play guitar and we struggle to figure out the chords and the strumming patterns and are embarrassed to even play like for a recording for posterity. You get up on stage and scream in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. So I think Renaissance Man is a fair is a fair label to hang on you. I hope you don't resist it. Not at all. I mean, you know, so many of the things that I've done, you know, painting is a perfect example of, you know, I was in college. I can't afford art for the walls, but hey, I, I want to put something there. Well, I'm I'm gonna do it myself, you know. And and growing up watching, I mean, you know, I was in that MTV age and sitting around. Like I, I used to go visit. Uh, my parents were divorced. I used to go visit my mom during the summers sometimes, and she and my stepdad would go to work. So I'm literally rattling around the house all day with nothing else to do but sit there and watch eight hours of MTV. And I was like, Back well, when they showed music. 
Yeah, back when it showed music, and I th- but you can't. I mean, how many people saw that and was like, "Great, I want to go pick up a guitar," and so I did. Like all those things that I want to, you know, it's like I I love movies. Well, I'm going to learn how to make those. I want I want to learn how to do this. I want to go to film school. You know, all that stuff. I I don't do well sitting idly by and just admiring something, especially in, in the arts. I, I would much rather say I enjoy that I, so much that I want to be a part of it. You know, I, I don't want to just go to a concert. I want to be, and that's like I barely ever go to live music anymore since I stopped playing in a band because it's actually like I go to a show and I want to be on stage. Like I want to be doing that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little. It's actually very frustrating to not be up and performing you know just because i'm i love it so much that i want to be a part of it in the most visceral way possible mm-hmm. so do you think you'll uh play in a band again ever or is that uh, according to my wife no i will not <laughs> turns well, out it's quite this... expensive <laughs> to be in a band <laughs> yeah it's it, it was costing a lot of money i mean you know we we, we owned a tour van and we oh. would go out on tour and it's you know all and yeah uh I mean, music is something especially like I, I do. I, I miss it every day, but I also will freely acknowledge that it is a young man's game. And, I, you know, after the last band broke up, I I recorded a bunch of solo songs and, you know, like quieter acoustic stuff just because I had, you know, I had, I had all these songs and I played out a couple of times acoustically. And I really came to the conclusion that I wasn't adding anything to the conversation. I'm not a great singer. I think I think of probably 200 songs that I've written I'm probably really happy with maybe five of them so if I'm if I'm not adding to the betterment of of an art form then better that I just don't do it and let the real people that are talented handle it so I still think you should pick up the guitar go down to the coffee shop once every six months or so just to do yeah I don't know but I I think I've I look forward to you know when I'm older and retired and then maybe there's a little bit of grit to my voice or something like that, then I, I, th- I think I can do it. Then I, I definitely don't set age limits on that kind of stuff. I think I can move into a different phase with, with music, but how about other oh. aspects of the filmmaking? I mean, you're, you're obviously your chops as an editor are, are tops. You're getting Emmy awards, but how about, uh, you know, writing and directing your own films or. Yeah, it's, it's hard because again, like you, you reach a point where I can't, sacrifice the same way I could in my twenties. Um, you know, like I would dearly, dearly love to make another film of some scale, but I know the financial outlay for me is, is just not there. And I, I don't want, I can't do that to my family. Right. I, I, I don't want them to have to suffer for my dream, you know, me pursuing my dreams or whatever. Um, I mean, I still hold out some, you know, hope of, a screenwriting career in terms of you know adapting my novels and I, I i see the novels very much tied to hollywood and and it's definitely a goal of mm-hmm. getting something adapted i'm and, and i've you know i've in the past year or so i've i wrote a pilot script and i'm i have the uh, film and tv agent through my agency so i'm i'm still trying to keep a, a foot in that world as much as hollywood sort of ground me up and spit me out and said no thank you um back you know back when but I, it's still something that I, I really enjoy as even though the business has changed a tremendous amount and it's you know it's it comes with its own set of frustrations and there's a lot left undone for my goals but uh 
you know, never say never. And I, and I would not say no to any opportunity that, that came up, but I'm, I'm having a very good time and feeling a tremendous amount of creative satisfaction from the novels that I almost, I think I never got in screenwriting just because you do feel so much more ownership of it. It's, it's so much more your vision and your story. Yeah. And and I think in a strange way, novels are just, they're so much more well-respected from a writer's point of view. I mean, I, you know, I was in a room several times pitching screenplays and you can barely get a sentence out of your mouth before someone does the what if, you know, it's like, well, okay. The story is about this girl and she's in college. Oh, okay. Well, what if it's a man and he's living in New York city as a firefighter, you know, it's like, you're like, you know, what if she's a ghost and you're like, wait a minute, what? Like, (laughs) just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole, it's just a different mentality. (laughs) You know, people, people, it's the culture of Hollywood is very much that it's a collaboration. And in, in a lot of ways it has to be to make a film. It takes hundreds and hundreds of people. But writers are pretty low on the pecking order, as I understand it. Unfortunately, I think, I Which think is that's ironic, true. isn't it? I mean, that's where the ideas come from and how they. Yeah. But it's also one of those things like not, not everyone can take a camera and make a beautiful image with the skills of a cinematographer mm-hmm. and whether or not, you know, if you take the quality side out of it, everyone can think of an idea for a story or everyone can add a line of dialogue or everyone can say, what if this, what if that everyone can type. So writing, I think is less precious because everyone can do it. It's a question of doing it well, mm-hmm. or, but it's also, you know, I mean, I, I don't think anyone would argue that writing that comes from a, either a single or a, a highly focused division, whether it's a writer working with a director or a, you know, writing team that's very small or whatever. I I think most people would agree that that kind of writing is usually a much more successful creatively than the written by committee and, and, and not that it can't work and, and absolutely not that it doesn't mean hugely popular, hugely successful films because more often than not, the movies that make a ton of money are absolutely written by committee and they're, they're written by someone who came up with the idea they're bought, they're immediately farmed out to a rewriter. And there's probably three, four, five sets of hands that, that you never hear about that never get screen credit. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a different process and, and it works for Hollywood and, and that's great. And that's why a lot of authors who have made it big, give the advice of, look, if you're going to, let somebody make a movie out of your book, take the money and shut up and yeah, don't be involved yeah. any further because it's a completely different world. And, and look, I mean, the other thing I, that I've, I always like to quantify any comments that I have is like, I, I, I was a screenwriter for a number of years. I, I sold original screenplays. I got paid to write stuff on assignment. Nothing ever got made. I am not an insider, even though, you know, I, I work in TV. I, the whole world of feature films and feature screenwriting still is a bit of a mystery because I've been kept just on the other side of the door. So take everything I say with a grain of salt. And I, and I, and anything I say is not with any amount of bitterness. I mean, I still, I, I still love the movies and, and, and when they get it right, I'm so happy. And I, and to be able to take my daughters now who are nine and 11 and to be able to show them films for the first time that I loved and, and just to be able to see the magic in their eyes. I mean, it's movies are so trans supportive and they're just they succeed in a way that almost no other art form does and anything i say is just jealousy and bitterness (laughs) you just said you weren't bitter (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, deep in utmost respect. <laughs> in a lot of ways, I was kind of one of those original hipster jerks who was like, I love Obscure films from, better, well, yeah. yeah, like I love films from France and it's like in music too. Like if you ask me my favorite Japanese band, I have to sort of pause and think about it. And so. <laughs> I t- I t- Who's I your favorite guess. Portuguese band? Well, uh, yeah, let's just, uh, could you, are we talking subgenres here? Yeah. <laughs> electronic music or more like music? <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I definitely, and I think because of, especially growing up in the music I listened to, I was a complete outlier. Like in my high school, I was the only punk rock kid. I try very hard. I never judge anybody for what you like. You like what you like. Yeah, that's sure. That's fine by, like, don't let anybody talk you out of the things right. you like. I, you know, I, and, but it doesn't, I still reserve the right to talk Not trash like about, about, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, you, you can't. You can write all the glowing tributes to Steely Dan that you want. You're, you're not going to make me reevaluate their catalog and come to appreciate it. But you like it, great. Right, it works for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you this: How long have you? When, you said that Devil Doesn't Want Me was one of your first books. When when did you write that? Yikes! Uh, I th- guess that's been eight years ago now. And you've been it, plugging out books pretty eight or nine years here. Eight or nine years. Yeah, my my first book was published in 2009. That was a co-written book with J.B. Cole called One Too Many Blows to the Head. And since then, when, I think when the third Devil book comes out next February, that'll be the 19th book. So Getaway List will be number 20. Yes. Cool. Um, unless, unless there's something else in between. There there may be one more in between there. <laughs> so you can't, you're not sure if you got a book coming out between track. February and August. <laughs> Well, so that ties into my question, which is, you know, you've been plugging away at this uh, uh, really hard for eight years or so, eight or nine years now. You know, you're up for multiple Anthony's. Do you feel like you're on the verge of a breakout? Oh, geez. You caught me in a terrible week for this, Frank. Um, I just just this week got more uh, rejections for the latest novel that's on submission that I, I honest to goodness, like it's the most mainstream thing I've ever written. Like if this nobody wants this novel. This is yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's a it's a thriller and it's yeah, I I, I mean I th- I thought it was very mainstream. I don't know, uh, I mean yeah, it's it's tough. It's it's a hard road, and in a lot of ways, it's been twenty six years, I think. In some terms, I mean, I guess I wrote, I wrote 17 feature length screenplays when I was, when I was screenwriting, you know, I have, I had my agent and, you know, I, I did that whole world before I turned to writing novels. So I, I mean, I've, I've been writing and plugging away, like you say, for, you know, for, for 20 plus years. And it's, it's very difficult at times. It can be really disheartening. It can be really frustrating to get so close and yet not quite breakthrough and 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 I say that with with all humility I know that where I am in my career is someplace that there are people who want to be where I am so so I I know that and 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 I I never want to be seen and I never I honestly never feel like oh woe is me oh that sure. person that person got you know success when I didn't why is that and you know I, I don't I don't think I deserve it more than anybody else or any of that stuff. I do I, I mean I know nobody works harder than I do. I think I'm sure I, I would hope that everyone out there is working as hard and you know finding someone you know like Steve Loudon 
who has the same sort of work ethic of like, well, let's think of other ideas. Let's think of ways to get out there. Let's, and you know, but it always comes down to just keep writing and keep writing the best books you possibly can. And I, but I also, I like when I meet younger writers, I try to be really honest about the frustrations of this business. I mean, it's, it's a fickle world to be in because there's limited shelf space. There's limited, you know, space on the roster of any publisher, large or small. And you are dealing with something that's essentially objective. I mean, you know, someone can read, I mean, how many of us have read huge best-selling novels and thought, really that that sold, you know, 10 million copies mm-hmm. while at the same time you, you know, you read an indie novel or, you know, I'll read something and think, Oh my God, goodness like why didn't this blow up huge how is everybody not talking about this amazing book so so there's a factor of luck involved i think and in, in luck in terms of timing and luck yeah. in terms of you know i mean yeah you have to do the hard work for the luck to matter exactly and i think that's what it is you know there's, there's that i forget who said it but you know like the opportunity needs to come find you working or what you know whatever i'm butchering that but you know i i do think the thing that I keep hearing a lot that in, I think it's gone from being encouraging and kind to being uh, actually just really frustrating and shut up and stop saying that is <laughs> is that people telling me that I'm on the verge and people telling me that I'm about to break out and people telling me that, oh, this next book is going to be the one. Because honest to God, I've been hearing that for a long time. <laughs> and it's just, you know, I've, and I've told my agent, I've told, I've told a lot of people, like, look, if I'm an indie press guy for my entire career, I'm okay with that. You know, it doesn't mean I'm not going to stop striving. It doesn't mean I'm not going to stop reaching. It doesn't mean I'm not going to stop trying to stretch, you know, the limits of, of my own writing and try to be better than, than myself. Last time this year, you know, this time last year, whatever, la- the last book I turned in, I, I always want to try to be better. I want to try to reach for new ideas. I want to do something that is a little bit different for me. If, if that's the enjoyment I can get out of it and it's not a huge paycheck, whatever, I have a job, I'm, I'm doing fine. And I've gotten more either letters from readers that connect with what I do, praise and kind words from writers that I deeply, deeply respect to the point that I, I, I can't believe some of the kind things that people have said about my work from writers that I just you know, I'm blown away by like all of that stuff. I've accomplished way more than honestly I ever thought I would. So I'm, I'm doing just fine, but yes, absolutely. I have dreams and aspirations beyond my current station and every book that I churn out for the past, you know, three or four big idea novels, people have said, Oh yeah, here you go. This is the one. And it just hasn't turned out that way, but you know, there are, hopefully a hundred stories like that where, you know, someone can look back and laugh uh, in years from now and, and think back to all those quaint times when no one wanted to publish me. <laughs> well, it makes it particularly ironic that I was going to point out you won a, a stalker award a couple few, like five yeah. years ago for yeah. most criminally underrated uh, author or something yeah. like that. So uh, I probably won't mention that because I don't want to get punished. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've made a few lists of uh, you know best writers you've never heard of, which again is one of those things where it's like it's it's I mean what an honor to be on a list like that. Yeah, 
like the third time it happens, you're sort of like, oh, hmm, they still haven't heard of me. <laughs> what am I doing wrong here? <laughs> so it's, this this whole business yeah. is, is a little bit of a slap and tickle, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. I, you know, but I do think it's a, you know, there is an element of luck. There always is, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, certainly you're doing everything you're supposed to do uh, in terms of quality, in terms of... Uh, uh, range and in terms of uh, tenacity let's and, hope so uh, so i mean when that when that timing is right uh, 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 and who knows maybe maybe it's coming up next week you know maybe you're gonna walk away <laughs> with some hardware there and that'll tip the scales yeah you know that, that would be nice but uh, like i say it's just it's an honor to be nominated it definitely is well <laughs> it's an honor to have you on the show it's been a long time coming to yeah. have a, a meaningful conversation with you but it's kind of funny after uh, not not talking to you in person uh, for three years. I got to have a good long conversation with you, so I'm, I'm glad that happened. Yeah, it's been fun. All right, well, best of luck in uh, Toronto. Thank you very much. Well, that was a lot, a lot of fun for me to, to uh, spend time talking to Eric. Uh, uh, as we discussed in the in the interview, we we spent a lot of time knowing each other and only communicating via email and not talking in person. And I was pleased that, uh, when we did, uh, get the chance to talk in person, when I appeared on uh, writer types. And then when we did this interview that he, uh, he and I just, that the conversation was as, as easy and, and friendly as it, as it always was over email and, and if not more so. Uh, so I, I was glad for that. I truly admire the guy. He's uh, very talented and he has a pretty wide range of talent uh, and uh, had a good time interviewing him. Now, when we recorded that, he had yet to go to the VoucherCon, uh, uh, and, and, and the awards had not yet been handed out. I'm, I'm sad to say that uh, he did not win uh, any of the awards for his uh, solo work, but uh, like we talked about, sometimes being nominated truly is, uh, truly is an honor, and it certainly doesn't detract from uh, what a incredible writer he is and uh, i really uh, urge you to check out his books he's got uh he's got titles that will appeal to you uh, regardless of what kind of writing you're looking for and now we're going to do our quick hit interview with the next month's guest jerry keneally jerry keneally what city do you live in now your favorite writer. Wayne Chandler. Favorite movie. North by Northwest. Favorite television show. Justified. Uh, do you have a nickname? I just Keneal. What are you working on right now? I'm working on a new polo book. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? Golf. Your favorite sport? What would be golf. How about your favorite musician? Sinatra. Your five-second advice to aspiring writers. Uh, I quote him uh, I drunk and it's sober. <laughs> Where would you like to go that you've never been? I guess France. I've never been to France. And lastly, what's your favorite quote? I think I'd have to go back to that Hemingway one. Right. Drunk it, it's sober. <laughs> we can double dip. That's fine. <laughs> okay. All right. Looking forward to interviewing Jerry. Well, that is it for this episode, folks. Uh, I'd like to thank Down Out Books for sponsoring the show. Jim Thompson for coming on with a great uh, recommendation. Uh, of course, Eric Beatner for uh, sitting uh, for a very long interview and being an entertaining and uh, cool guy. Uh, and I'd like to thank you for following along uh, with this show. I really appreciate it. 
Um, we'll, we'll talk to Jerry Keneally next month. And until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.